the death and resurrection of Jesus through relics. I actually have, maybe it was a little bit of false advertising, but in this talk, I don't want to limit this talk to the shroud. Because as I was talking to people about the shroud, a lot of people said, oh, I went to something in Georgia Tech, or I've read this, or I listened to this, or I've kind of heard about this before. So I actually want to do a kind of walk through the passion following these 12 relics, or 11 relics. Yeah? And my goal to do this is that is really to strengthen our faith in the resurrection. So that we don't, sometimes we think of the life of Christ, we think of the resurrection as like, you know, it's kind of this thing we have to accept on, on blind faith. You know, we, it's the story that we heard and it kind of makes sense spiritually. You know, like we all kind of intuitively know that love brings happiness and love brings joy. And, you know, kind of like a Jordan Peterson approach, you know? Uh, like, what's the term he likes to use all the time? Uh, like archetypical, right? Like the archetype of the resurrection makes a lot of sense and everything else. And this is actually an attempt at just cutting through all of that and going to the historic like footprint that was left for us on the morning of the resurrection. Yeah, that's what I want to do by going through these relics. So in order to understand how these relics got to us, these are some concepts that are going to be useful. Uh, so the Jewish law did not allow for touching blood. Yeah, blood is an unclean thing. So you could touch blood, but then you have to go, yeah, you would have to go and be purified. And the reason for that is that blood was considered to have the life force of a living thing, and so that belongs to God. So no one is allowed to drink it, obviously. The kosher laws, no one is allowed to touch it. You have to go be purified in the temple. So already the relics were something that was kind of ambivalent in meaning for the early Christians who were Jewish. Yeah. Uh, also, God's image. You know, we, God's image cannot be, cannot be represented. And we're going to see in the Shroud of Turin, all of a sudden God's image has been present Historically, we know it was the Sabbath, so there was a whole day when all these things were just left to be. And it took on the third day for them to finally do it. Uh, Jewish burial, we're going to just kind of come across different dimensions of Jewish burial that maybe we weren't familiar with. Uh, tradition, how these relics were moved from one place to another. Persecution and war, why these relics seem to have disappeared. For, they would like disappear for 200 years and then appear again. Um, and then what we can say, like, rationally and even scientifically and historiographically, what credibility do they have if they just disappeared for 300 years and then appeared again, right? How do I know that was my iPhone, you know, 300 years later, right? So kind of some of these questions around how do we actually believe these things, what helps us to believe, um, so those are the main things. So the relics all started in Jerusalem, obviously. You saw there's a historical progression of the relics from Jerusalem to Constantinople, the reason that they were taken to Constantinople is because Saint, well, because when the Roman Empire stopped persecuting Christians, the capital of the Roman, of Roman Empire was not Rome. It was Rome for like 10 years. Shortly after that, Constantinople became the capital of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And so uh, the relics were moved there by Saint Helena and by Constantine. And then, over time, especially during the Crusades, when this whole area fell into the hands of the Turks, 
the relics were moved to Italy and to France, or they were moved to Spain during the Crusades. And so this is the progression of the relics. So first of all, you can say this is the greatest relic. We're going to talk about this and then the other ones and how they fit in. The greatest relic is the Shroud of Turin. What is the Shroud of Turin? Well, here, this painting is from 1575. So already gives you a bit of a historic grounding for when this relic was, was known. Uh, the, the Shroud, are you guys familiar with the term Shroud or no? Shroud of Turin? Who's never heard of the Shroud of Turin? Raise your hands. Okay, you've never heard of the Shroud? Okay, this is great. Uh, so the Shroud of Turin, we're going to see an image in just a second, but here it kind of helps explain what the Shroud is. In Jewish burial customs, you were wrapped in a linen cloth when you were placed in the tomb. Yeah. And so Jesus getting a Jewish burial in a new tomb, right? and then tombs were recycled because a body was placed there and then it was left to decompose, and when it had finally decomposed, you would take the bones, put them somewhere, and then you would use the tomb for someone else. Yeah, and so they would have to be wrapped up because that's where everything would eventually be, you know, kind of carried out and put somewhere else. So this is, was just the cloth. Jesus was also wrapped in a cloth. Yeah, that's the shroud. It's called Turin. Turin is a city in Italy, and that's where it's currently kept. That's why it's called the shroud of Turin. This is the shroud of Turin. This is what it looks like currently. Yeah, this is not exact. I mean, I have no idea if it's actually life size. But it's a life-size, I can give you some uh, details in just a second, but it is a life-size corpse uh, wrapped in a single sheet. And on this side, you kind of see it here, we're about to see the negative where it's more clearly seen, but this is the closest replica to what the Shroud of Turin currently looks like. Yeah, and I'll, I'll get into details in just a second, but you can see there's a face here, there's arms, there's legs. Here you see something that looks like the back of the head. You see a back. You see two legs coming down here. And uh, we'll get into details in just a second. Now here it is, 14 feet 3 inches and 3 feet 7 inches wide. The Shroud of Turin uh, was seen the way you saw it for 2,000 years until in the late 19th century photography was being developed, and someone decided to take a picture of the shroud. When they took a picture of the shroud, in the process of developing pictures, you see the negative of the picture. And so for the first time, this image appeared. This image appeared. And this is the negative of the actual image. So when the negative was first seen, all this new attention was shed on this relic, yeah, on this piece of cloth that was being kept in turn. Uh, and studies began to happen. The major study that happened was in 1978. They exposed the shroud and they allowed a team of, I think it's like 28 scientists, the Shroud of Turin something research project, STIRP. You can look it up on Wikipedia. You have the names of all the scientists that are there. Some were Catholic, some were not Catholic, some were Jewish, some were atheists, some were agnostic, and everything else. And they dedicated, they planned for 19 months, and then they had access to it, I think, for three full days, nonstop. And during those days, they began to analyze the Shroud of Turin. This is what they found. 
There's lots of high quality in from the first century. Yeah. So the question, actually, they had, they had the questions they were asking themselves were, uh, is it a painting? Is it scorched? Is it treated chemically? Yeah. Let's explain what is actually there, what we see. We have this thing that we're looking at. Well, what in the world is it? Yeah. So this is what they found. High quality first linen, uh, sorry, linen from the first century. That's the thing. Image of the crucified man, how? So there's two things that are visible here. One is, and it's a shame we don't have like an actual relic. There's a really, I mean, not the relic, an actual, what do you call it, replica. There's a great replica up in coming. Yeah, almost North Georgia coming. Um, in the church of St. Brendan the Navigator. Downstairs in the basement, they have a life-size replica of this. I highly recommend going. There's two things that are visible. One is this kind of blackish uh, image that looks like ink almost, but it's not ink, it kind of looks like ink. And the other thing that's visible is blood, tons of blood. Those are the only two things that are visible, yeah? Why is blood red? Because blood normally, when it gets poured out, it becomes dark very quickly. So why is this blood so red? It has apparently very high levels of, I think it's called bilirubin. Any nurses or doctors here among us? In Spanish it's bilirubina. Bilirubin, right? It's one of the compounds in blood that makes it look red. Yeah, hence rubin. Uh, and bilirubin is released in high quantities of blood when? You study all these years. For what? Now get it up. So specifically, sorry, yeah, specifically, the blood of a human being releases, uh, or the body releases bilirubin to blood when it's in trauma. Yeah, in high levels of anxiety and stress, the blood becomes more red, so that when it's poured out, it remains red. Yeah, so there's tons of there's tons of blood. The best explanation for what that image is. So as they're looking at the cloth, what they discovered is it's not ink. It's actually something they, they describe it as oxidized, so it's like burnt. So it's as if the image had been burned onto the cloth, but it's only at a microscopic depth of burning into the cloth. Yeah, so imagine if you wanted to burn a piece of cardboard, what do you do? You get a hot iron and you put it on the cardboard and you release it immediately, right? So you release it immediately, one side of the cardboard is burnt, the other side is not burnt, right? Can you visualize that? Yeah? So that's the type of effect that's on the cloth, except that it's so thin that for it to have been burnt only that thin and to have not burnt the other side of the cloth, you need this ridiculous amount of energy that doesn't exist in the world, and you would have had to have it for a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. I don't have the exact quantity of lumens and you know nanoseconds here, mm -hmm. but it's like an incredible amount of lumens for a ridiculously short amount of nanoseconds. So much so that these scientists, and they, there are scientists from the, all these universities, scientists from Italy, scientists from uh, NASA, and professional photographers were there. They said, we have no explanation. We're not, obviously, they're not going to say that it's miraculous. I mean, it's, it's, it escapes their purview, right? But what we can say is we have no explanation for how the blackened image is on there. 
Something else interesting about the, this shroud that exists is it happens to have all the wounds of the passion of Jesus. Yeah, like coincidentally. Right? So it was not common for men to be scourged and have a crown of thorns on their head before they were crucified. Yeah, so here you have, well, first of all, you have extremely high amounts of blood. Where? On the wrists, on the feet, in the back of the head, and you have this huge amount of blood here. This is from the front, and in the back, it kind of trails down this way. You also have blood on the arms and on the legs that flows according to gravity as if the body had been upright and as if the arms had been hanging above the head. You have, ex you have blood all over the, the flesh in the shape of a scourging, which we'll get to later. Yeah? But the blood marks on this particular shroud exactly match what the Gospels tell us of the crucifixion of Jesus. Blood stains are type AB, so they've done analysis on it. It's all single, you know, it's all blood of the same human being. It's all AB. They found 58 different types of pollen stuck into the shroud. Yeah? The pollen actually is really interesting because there's a major amount of three pollens and then little amounts of different pollens. The major amount of three pollens all are from the area of Jerusalem. We got a whole other talk on the shroud of turn. I'm gonna move ahead, right? But it's all from the area of Jerusalem. And you know what's really interesting about pollen is, did anyone feel allergy today? Allergies today? Right? So pollen doesn't just tell you where you are, it tells you what time of the year you're in. So this pollen actually corresponds to not just that area of Jerusalem, but springtime in Jerusalem. Passover time in Jerusalem. The other types of pollen that were found are from, from Syria, from Turkey, and from Italy. So it matches the journey of the shroud to turn. Okay, super interesting. There are plants and flowers, apparently, and this different experts will say yes, different experts will say no, but apparently one of the things that they would do to keep the body, well, so remember what happened. They buried the body and they said, we're gonna come back later to continue to embalm it properly and everything else, right? So what they found, they found plants and flowers, so the theory is that they just scattered flowers over the body of Jesus when they wrapped it up in the, in the shroud. Dirt, nose, knee, and heel. This is super interesting. They also found dirt in the cloth. And you know where they found dirt? On the left knee and in the nostrils. So that whoever was there, his knee touched the ground at some moment and knee encrusted into the knee and then encrusted into the shroud at that moment and also his nose, either because he was breathing in dust and dirt, or because his head would have touched like this, and the humidity on his nose would have allowed dirt to accumulate there, and then transmit onto the shroud. Perfect anatomy. Yeah, so Leonardo da Vinci must have been a genius when he did this, not kidding. Uh, perfect anatomy. Actually, perfect anatomy that was not known uh, during the Renaissance. It was not known during the Middle Ages. Because it was only in late Renaissance that they began to dig up bodies to study anatomy. Before that, it was completely taboo. So that's why when you look at, middle, at paintings from the Middle Ages, they look kind of funny. Because they don't actually know the muscle structure of 
well, the Greeks knew. So I guess they could have copied the Greeks, right? But in Western Europe, they didn't know muscle structure and bone structure until they were allowed to exhume cadavers, which was Middle Ages. It's a perfect anatomy. It's three-dimensional. What does a three-dimensional mean? And this, I'm not, I've, they've tried to explain this to me several times. I'm gonna do the best that I can in trying to explain what the three-dimensional means. But what it means is, the body, if you notice, if I get a cloth, and I put a cloth on my face like this, and then I open it up, my ears would be out here, yeah? That's not what you see in the shroud. So you don't see a cloth that wrapped around. You see a cloth that was here, and somehow took an image from the same distance, kind of parallel to the, like an imaginary middle plane of the body, yeah? Why is that important? Because that gives us something like a 3D image of the body. Because the, the darker it is, the more intense it is, the closer it is to the cloth. The less intense it is, the further away it is from the cloth. So they've actually been able to do these images here. This is a computer uh, generated image based on the intensity of the image on the cloth. There's no outline, there's no shadows. You would have expected some shadows, there's no shadows on here. Uh, and there's no decomposition in the body. Yeah. So it also doesn't make sense. Why would you have so much blood and no decomposition? Yeah. So it must have like immediately, but nothing happened. All right, so this is the shroud. It's fascinating. Super fascinating, yeah? I obviously looked up a bunch of stuff in preparation for this talk. I looked on Wikipedia, and the Wikipedia article is a sham, by the way. It's super depressing, yeah? To read it, it's like, these are all the theories that have been debunked. It's like, oh my goodness, yeah? Instead, there's so much, there are so many serious studies of the shroud that it's just, it's a joy to go in there and start reading everything, yeah? Uh, maybe before, just the, re, the major arguments against the shroud, besides Leonardo da Vinci having invented this whole thing, uh, which someone did say, by the way, right? It's like, Whatever, right? Somehow he managed to burn the image on it. The major argument against the shroud is that they did carbon dating in the 80s on the shroud. And do you guys know how carbon dating works? Do you remember, you don't remember from middle school, uh, uh, what is it, science class? So carbon dating, all chemicals, all atoms have a uh, decomposition time, uh, like a, an atomic shelf life. So that after a certain amount of time, the, is anyone here, does anyone here know this better than I, me, want to explain? There's ions, right? There's like, so carbon is, um, is what number is it on it? Six. Like the half-life, so you start to get more and more variants of uh, positive or negative uh, ions within the same element. And it happens at a particularly fixed rate, so that you can know by how much carbon-14 there is, because carbon is normally 12, Yes. Man, I haven't studied this in a long time. Thank you. So carbon is normally 12, right? But you can get two extra neutrons, and so carbon remains carbon, but it's now called carbon-14. It has an atomic mass of 14. And that happens at a regular rate. So if you take a living organism that you know should have carbon-12, but instead it has a certain amount of carbon-14, you can date it back in time, and you can say it's 100 years old, it's 1,000 years old, it's 20,000 years old, whatever. So far, so good? 
They did a carbon dating test on the little corner that they grabbed out of here somewhere. And the big reveal came out and they said, this is from the time of the Crusades. It's from the 1200s. Wow. Yeah. This is, by the way, after the STIRP study had definitively said, we don't know how this image got on there. We don't have any technology. We have no idea how to produce this. Right? And so after that, everybody who wanted to debunk it, obviously, you know, took that bandwagon and they rolled with it happily ever after. The problem is carbon-14, carbon decays based on its natural, at natural temperature, decays at a certain rate, but it decays more or less depending on the uh, conditions at which it's been spent, specifically heat. So if you remember the original image, all these holes happened from different uh, fires that it was in. So this shroud was in a fire, this shroud has some water damage over here, this shroud has actually a whole strip over here. You see there's like a line here. It's kind of hard to see. But this strip is actually sewed onto it. And I'll explain what the theories are behind that strip. Uh, it's also been touched and, and moved around by people for 2,000 years. And so the likelihood that they took a sample of carbon of the cloth that had been affected by the historical comings and goings and the temperature and the heat and everything else is super high. Right. So. Experts on the shroud, they don't really take the carbon-14 dating seriously because there's so many ways in which it was not precise. Uh, here's the shroud, here's Pope Francis looking at the shroud. This is the Cardinal from Turin. You know, he says the image of shroud is that of Jesus Christ and no one else. They asked John Paul II what he thought of the shroud. They said, John Paul II, do you think that the shroud is truly the image uh, or the, the burial shroud of Jesus? And JP2, you know what he said? He said, I think so. <laughs> so he didn't put his papal magisterium behind it, but he's like, yeah, I think so. Uh, all right, so that's the shroud. Yeah, we'll have time for questions right afterwards, but that's the shroud. So moving on to the other, the other uh, relics. So... How did the Passion of Christ start? It started with him being scourged. So experts say that he was actually scourged twice because Jesus was tried twice. He was tried by Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Then he was tried by Herod, who he didn't say a word to Herod, and Herod kicked him out of his court. And then he was tried by Pilate. So there are actually two columns that claim to be the place where Jesus was scourged. Okay, you have this first one here. Uh, and this one actually, so this is in the sacred tomb in Jerusalem. They believe that this is the one that belonged to the house of Caiaphas. And this one here is the one that belonged to uh, Pilate. Yeah, why do they believe that? Because of the type of marble that this is. What's the historical progression of these? Who's the first person to claim to have seen these? It was already, uh, so there's a document that was found in the seventh century attributed to a pilgrim called Egeria, who lived at the end of the fourth century. Have you guys heard about her? No, so Egeria, she was a, she was a pilgrim that went to the Holy Land and wrote down the experience of the Holy Land. So we know a lot of the Holy Land from her. She talks about the liturgies were there, she talks about the people she saw, etc. So she claims already to have seen this pillar, 
and she went in the year 381 to Palestine. So the earliest historical reference to this is from 381. Uh, it is 63 centimeters high, 40 centimeters at the base, and the material is marble from Egypt, which was used by the Asmodean dynasty when they built their palaces in Jerusalem. Yeah, so currently, where is this? Currently, this is in Rome. It's in the Church of St. Praxedes, right next to St. Mary Major. But the type of marble is from Egypt, and the earliest time that it was seen was in Jerusalem, and now it exists there. Yeah. Also, if you saw, here, here you have the image of the blood on Christ. So the Romans, you know, they say, how many times was Jesus scourged? Right? You might have heard 40 minus 1 lashes. 40 minus 1 lashes is what the Old Testament says, that a Jewish person was not allowed to whip another Jewish person more than 39 times as a punishment, to avoid cruel and unusual punishments. But the Romans did not have limits on cruel and unusual punishments. Yeah, actually, they have a doctorate in cruel and unusual punishments. And so if you've seen the movie The Passion, it's pretty close, except probably it didn't rip into the flesh the way that in The Passion it describes it, but something pretty similar. And you can tell by all these scourges. So Jesus is scourged all on his back. He scourged, he was probably naked when he was scourged, he had that tiny little loincloth. He scourged in the back of his legs. He scourged all the way down to his heels. And he scourged on his arms. And he's also scourged in front. So in the movie The Passion, when they say flip him, yeah, that's actually the closest description to what actually happened. And we see that from the shrine. Uh, the crown of thorns. So after he was scourged by the Roman centurions, and the Roman, not the Roman centurions, sorry. He was, he was scourged by the guard of Pilate. So every Roman uh, officer had a cohort that defended the place where he lived. And so Pontius Pilate had a cohort that carried out his immediate, it was immediately under his command. And those are the ones that scourged him. They hated Jews, by the way. Yeah, it is true. The reference to the Palestinian uh, territory owned and governed, not owned, governed by the Romans, there are documents that state how much people hated being assigned there. And actually being assigned there was kind of a punishment. You were sent out to this deserted area in the middle of nowhere where you couldn't ascend in your career within the Roman hierarchy. So it was people that hated being there. Yeah? And why did they hate being there? Because they hated being in charge of Jewish people in this terrible land. Those are the ones that were scourging Jesus. The crown of thorns. So in order to mock him, what did they do? They built a crown of thorns. Yeah, the oldest historical document on this crown of thorns, well, the oldest, obviously the Gospels, on this crown of thorns comes from the year 409 by a pilgrim called St. Paulino de Nola. And he mentions that it had a helmet shape that covered the entire head. In the year 650, St. Gregory of Tours wrote that many of the branches and thorns had broken off and that the only remains of the crown was the base, which started the model to be represented in all religious paintings. So in the year 400, someone claims to have seen it as a helmet. In the year 605, 
all this other part had broken off because this is much more sturdy and it's the part that had woven much more strongly. And so little by little, these parts were taken off. They were also used as relics. They were sent to different places. Everyone wanted to have a little piece of something, you know, it's like when you gift shop at Disney World, you know? Mm -hmm. Sorry, that has nothing to do with this. <laughs> uh, but you know, we're material, we want something, right? We want to hold on to something. So little by little, that part fell off. Here's what's left. So what happened to the crown of thorns? Um, the crown of thorns was taken to, uh, it was taken to Constantinople, and then it was bought by Louis the Ninth. Here it is. It was bought by Louis the Ninth in the year 1239 from Balduino II, who was the governor of the Latin Empire in Palestine. Okay? Do you know how much he paid for this crown? Good old Saint Louis the Ninth. He paid 135,000 pounds of gold to buy this crown from Balduino. He then went and he built a tiny little chapel called uh, the Saint Chapelle, which image of it. Here's the Saint Chapelle. Yeah. <laughs> he built a tiny little reliquary to hold this crown that he had just brought because he clearly believed it was the real crown that had belonged to the King of Kings. And so do you know how much he paid to build that little chapel? 40,000 pounds of gold. So he paid 135,000 pounds of gold for the crown. He paid 40,000 crowns to build the chapel. Just to give us a sense of perspective on the value attributed to this crown. Yeah, here it is, it's shown uh, every first Friday of the month at 3 p.m. to commemorate the death of Christ. It's shown and it's venerated and they moved it from the Saint-Chapelle, they moved it to uh, Notre Dame. And you might remember when Notre Dame burnt, one of the cannons that was there went in and rescued the crown of thorns. And the first news that appeared when this whole thing was being said is, the crown of thorns survived, right? Most of us were like, okay. <laughs> and yet that crown of thorns was worn by Christ. So the crown of thorns is there. The veil of Manopello. What is the veil of Manopello? So this is the only relic that has not been authenticated by scientists. Yeah. Uh, here it is, Veronica's veil. So Veronica's veil, this veil, the history of this veil, this veil is now in a little town called Manopello. It's like two hours away from Rome. It used to be held in the very center of the St. Peter's Basilica. So if you go to St. Peter's Basilica, I'm sure you went, you guys went on your honeymoon to St. Peter's. When you go to St. Peter's Basilica, the four, there are four huge columns, and they all have something to do with the cross of Christ. So you have St. Helena on one side, you have St. Longinus on the other side holding a spear, you have St. Andrew the Apostle who was also crucified, and you have Veronica. There's a little box there that's now empty. It used to have this piece of cloth. Yeah. So Veronica does not appear in the Gospels. However, the tradition of Veronica dates from the very, very beginning. I think there's a writing somewhere from the year... Uh, 
Well, there's a Gospel of Nicodemus from the year 380 AD, so it's not a real Gospel, don't worry. Uh, it's also called the Acts of Pilate, and they talk about Veronica as being the woman uh, healed of the hemorrhage by Jesus, who then also appears later on the Passion and puts the, the image on the face of Christ. Okay? Uh, the first reference to this veil of Montebello is from the 6th century, so from the 500s, and it was called the Linen of Camulia, a town in Turkey that does not currently exist. Camulia is close to Edessa, where the Shroud of Turin was kept for centuries. We know that this relic was moved to Constantinople in the year 574. Eventually, around the year 705, the linen was moved to Rome and was kept in St. Veronica's Chapel in St. Peter's. So what is this relic? I've actually seen it. Yeah. And this relic, the, it, the cloth, this, one, this is the shroud, and this is the, the, the veil of Montebello to show the, the, just how similar the shape is. But I mean, I don't know. This is the one that doesn't have, like I said, scientific studies. They haven't wanted to allow scientific studies on it, in part because it's made out of a material called lipus or sippus or something. So it's the same material that pearls are made out of. So it, it comes from the sea, this material. So shells produce like that sheen, that beautiful sheen, that you can do different things with it. So sometimes it's a pearl, sometimes you can crush it, and you can do like laminate from it. So another thing you can do is one type of mollusk actually produced that, produced that beautiful sheen in this super thin little silicon thread. Yeah. So that super thin little silicon thread was extremely highly priced, as you can imagine. It's only found at the bottom of the ocean. And it's this tiny little thin thing. So they would fish these things, and they would gather, they would cut these strings, sometimes they're like nine feet long, and they would build cloth from these strings. They would weave them together. Yeah, And it's much lighter and much warmer than silk. That's why it was so highly prized. You could take a whole piece of gloves and crunch it up into a tiny little ball, and then open it back up, and you have a glove. Imagine like the most amazing fiber ever. So there's a chunk of cloth this big made out of that material, and it has this image on it. Also, what we do know from science is that you can't paint on that cloth and let the paint remain there. Like, paint does not remain on that cloth because of the type of material that it is. Yeah? And so, in the ancient, like, Eastern church, this was known as one of those things that was not painted by man. Yeah? Eikon and Eikon, Acheiropoietos. Yeah? Which simply means not made, not created. Yeah? Sounds nice when you say it in Greek. Anyway, so, but this is the veil. This is very important because this veil is traditionally when Jesus was carrying the cross, this was a veil that was placed on his face. And this is the image that was left. We're going to look at these three now. The titulus, the beams, and the nails. So as Jesus was walking and he arrived at the place, uh, well, so St. Helen was the one that found the true cross. So back to what is a historical figure. I mean, I guess as we go through this, we can imagine the passion happening. So Jesus is walking. He receives a veil. They put the veil. He leaves his imprint on this veil. He continues walking, and there's a place where he's finally crucified. By the way, Jesus was, according to the Shroud of Turin, he wasn't carrying the whole cross. He was only carrying the crossbeam. 
And you can tell because, uh, I'll show you later, but there's more wounds on the right shoulder and on the left lower back of Christ. So he was carrying the wooden beam like this across this, yeah, on his shoulder. There's a lot more wounds. St. Helena is the one that we have to thank for finding these things. So tradition holds that when she went to the Holy Land, well, the, the reality is she went to the Holy Land after Constantine, her son, won the battle of Milbin Bridge in the year 312 in Rome. 312, 313, something like that. So Constantine was the first, Constantine was the first Christian emperor. He wasn't baptized until the end of his life. She was kind of devout. There's mixed stories about her. One of the things she did was she wanted to know more about Christianity. She went to the Holy Land. And when she went to the Holy Land, what she found was that all the places that were holy for the Christians had pagan temples built on top. Because that's what the Jew, that's what the Romans had done to eradicate Jewish worship of these places. For the Romans, Jews and Christians were kind of the same thing. So the Romans had actually built little temples. Yeah. And those who go to the Holy Land, we will see those places. So St. Helena went, and she knew exactly where they were. She knocked down the Roman temples, and she started digging up what was there. She found a beautiful house in Nazareth. She found a little tomb, a little grotto in Bethlehem. She found a rock quarry right in Jerusalem, right outside of Jerusalem. When she went to the rock quarry right outside of Jerusalem, and all the Christians around said, this is the place where Jesus was crucified, she opened everything up, and she found three crosses. She found nails, and she found a title. Tradition holds that, and when you go to the Holy Land, you see it, tradition holds that she placed a paralytic person on each of the three beams that she found. Romans, by the way, the vertical beam would stay put, and they would really just raise the person on the horizontal beam to sustain the weight. She placed a paralytic person on each of the three beams, and on one of the beams, the paralytic person was healed. So she said, that's the one that's the true cross. That's what tradition holds, that's what the art holds. Also, the title was there. I've seen this title as well. This title is in the church of um, Santa Croce in Jerusalem, in Rome. You can kind of see it here. And you can kind of see it here. So St. Helena was, and this is what the historians tell us, she arrived, she found the title, she broke the title in half. She kept one half, and she sent the other half to Rome. She wanted to grab onto something that had the name of Jesus. This title was authenticated by none other than Pope Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, which shows that a pope is always a pope, no matter what he does. Uh, and it actually contains the three, in three different languages, in Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew, it contains the phrase Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We have this title. Here's the cross. You took the cross. Here's where you see the image. Yeah. Uh, so this is Jesus carrying the cross. You see there's greater here. Or yeah, I guess there's a greater here. So sorry, he was holding it. I always thought it was the other way around. Maybe it's like this. But you see the effect of the cross on the back. Uh, Helena took the cross back to 
back to um, Jerusalem, back to Rome. And one of the reasons why she had such a devotion to the cross is because Constantine had seen an image the night, he had this dream image the night before entering into Rome in which he saw a cross and he heard Christ say, in this sign you will conquer. Yeah. Some said he saw the cross, some said he saw the Cairo. The Cairo is the X with an R on it, which is the he and the R in Greek, Christus. Either way, he saw, either saw the cross or he saw an X yeah, for Christus. And so the cross was very important. He actually had that emblazoned, he had that painted on the shields of all of his troops when he marched into Rome. Yeah, and he beat Mascentius. And so the cross is very important for Helen as well. So she brought the cross to, uh, to Rome. Helen divided the cross into three sections. The first one was left in Jerusalem. The second one she took to Rome to her palace. And the third she gave to her son to take to Constantinople the new capital that he was building. The piece from Jerusalem was divided into smaller pieces, given to favors or sold to finance Jerusalem. The, the Arabs conquered Jerusalem in 1187 and took the largest piece of the cross. Today there is still an 11.5 centimeter piece in the church of St. James in Jerusalem. So there's a piece still in Jerusalem. The second piece that St. Helena sent to Constantinople was splintered into smaller fragments in many cases by the emperor and given parts of the relic to influential persons. In 1204, during the Fourth Crusade, the city was looted by the Christians and they took the true cross. The largest piece, 42 centimeters, can be found today in Venice, in the Basilica of St. Marcus. The rest of the cross that's in, in Rome is in this church, Santa Croce in Jerusalem. So here you have different reliquaries holding little fragments of the cross that were sent throughout Europe. The three nails. So, where are the nails placed? Some people say, well, Father, you know, I see saints. It looks like the stigma's on their hand. But here in the shroud, it looks like the stigma's actually on the wrist. Yeah, which is it? And so the Romans, here you see extreme blood right on the hand. And here you see blood right on the ankle. Right on the feet and on the hand. So, the reason that, so the truth is Romans crucified by putting a nail right here, right under, for all the nurses and doctors, I don't know what these two bones are called. Radius and ulna, ulna, radius and ulna. So they kind of come together like this, and then you have a bunch of wrist bones right here. I think you have seven wrist bones. Yeah. And so they would place it right there where all those bones are held, right underneath the two bones that come together. Yeah. Why would they do that? So that it could sustain the weight. Also, if you've studied medicine, you know that that's where all the nerves go through. Right through that little piece. Right? So the Romans figured out, how can we affect all the nerves at the same time? We'll put a nail right there. We'll do the same for the feet. And that's what they did. Extremely cruel. As the weight hung on the nails, the nail eventually goes kind of like up to here. Yeah. So that's why in some tradition you see the, the wound a little bit more on the hand. Sometimes you see the wound a little bit more on the wrist. That explains the, the divergence, the difference. Okay. Uh, they put three nails. We have three nails from tradition. I'll tell you where those three nails went in just a second. 
but they put one nail for each arm and they put one nail on the feet. Here it might also be interesting to note that in the shroud, one arm is slightly longer than the other arm. That's another criticism you'll hear. But what they don't tell you is that one shoulder is disjointed from the body. So what happened was, when they put a nail in one of their arms, all the nerves contract from the pain. And so, and this is actually well portrayed in the Passion, when they were pulling out the other arm to try to crucify it, they were working against the nerves and the, everything else that had contracted, the ligaments, or, everything contracted. And so they had to pull the arm out, and in pulling it out, we see here in the shroud that the arm is actually dislocated. So Jesus wasn't just hanging on all his nerves being punctured. He was also hanging from all these nerves pulling out and all the weight pulling out on a disjointed shoulder. So those are the, the nails. What happened to the nails? So St. Helena is the one that actually found three nails. Yeah. Um, St. Helen kept one of the three nails and took it to Rome where she kept it in her private chapel. So actually the, the church that holds these was actually built just for her by her son Constantine. Um, and it was kept together with the cross and together with the title, the Titulus. The nail is 11.5 centimeters long, but a detailed inspection indicates that the head and the tip of the nail are missing. It is hypothesized that the head broke when the nail was taken from the cross and that the tip was cut, and it is assumed that the metal was molten with more metal to make additional nails. Even though it is impossible to include the nails of the originals, experts conclude that this nail is probably one of the nails from Jesus' cross. Also because the tradition of Helen was very scrupulous in finding exactly what the things that had touched the body of Christ. From the other two nails that were sent to Constantinople, we know one of them was sold by the imperial family in 1354 to Andrea di Grazia, director of the Hospital of Santa Maria de la Scala in Siena. So this is during the, uh, the decline of the Byzantine Empire, where they built a new chapel for it. Uh, and then the third nail is more difficult to track. It seems there's reason to believe it was cut into smaller pieces, melted or incorporated into other pieces so as to like bless other pieces of metal. One of the nails actually has an interesting uh, history. Here. One of the nails was actually uh, the third nail. So Theodore the Seer of the 5th century of St. Helena, she actually melted one of the nails and used it as she put it in, in her son's helmet. And she put the other part of the metal in the bit of Constantine's horse. Because the idea was if it had touched the Messiah, then it would make him invincible. And he had it on his helmet and if he rode his horse with and so, and so even today, uh, in Milan, they will bring out the harness, and they will bring out the helmet of Constantine for veneration, because it contained the nail that touched the body of Christ. Here you have two of the nails. This is Santa Croce in Jerusalem. Here's Santa Maria Scalenciana. I think this is in, uh, no, this is actually in here. I don't have pictures of the other one. The Argentoy tunic, I think that's how you pronounce it, Argent toy tunic. So this tunic, this relic is known to have arrived in France in the year 800. So what is it? This is a tunic that is attributed to, it's believed to be the tunic that the soldiers threw lots for 
when they crucified Jesus. What do we know from the tunic? We know that the in the 6th century, St. Gregory of Tours already refers to this tunic. In the 6th century, in the year, in the, in the years 500, around the year 500. They already refer this, to this tunic. It was later seen in France in the 800s, and when they did the scientific findings, this is what they found. It's made of wool. Uh, it's a type of wool that was common in the 1st and 2nd century in Egypt. The horizontal loom typical of the Middle East, and also they found 18 different spices, uh, every, 18 different types of pollen, the same as they found in the Shroud of Turin. Uh, here it is. Blood stains AB, same as the shroud. It's ripped left shoulder, so sorry, it was left shoulder to the right hip. So it was ripped by something, obviously. Makes perfect sense, it was ripped while Jesus was carrying the cross. And the correlation of the wounds overlap the shroud. Longinus's lance was also found. Longinus's lance is the lance that pierced this side. Um, the spear was in Jerusalem until the Persians invaded in 614. So what we know about is in the year 614, someone says, and I took Longinus's lance out of Jerusalem when the Turks invaded. That's the earliest historical reference that we have of it, besides the veneration that happened before that. This is the spear with which Jesus was pierced. So why was Jesus pierced? So normally people would last several days on the cross. You have documents stating how the Romans would actually hold guard on crucified people to keep others from feeding the crucified person and keeping them alive for days. So at night when the Romans fell asleep, people would come and give them water, they would give them food, because actually there's no reason to die if you're just holding your arms up like this. I mean, you can start to get gangrene and everything else, but you could be alive for days. That's why Pilate had the two thieves killed, how? By breaking their legs. So when they broke their legs, then the weight fell and they weren't able to breathe and so they died of suffocation. Asphyxiation. Uh, when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, but they weren't about to leave thinking that he was dead, and so they took the spear, and they shoved the spear into his side, and they found blood and water, according to St. John. They have found here not just blood, but blood and uh, like some blood serum that to the non-doctor would look like water that was flowing. Yeah. There are theories of why there's so much serum. Part of it has to do with the condition in which a body in trauma starts to produce and accumulate all this liquid in the lungs. Um, and so it matches with the story that we know of Christ who suffered tremendously before he was crucified. So Jesus died in three hours. Jesus was scourged and beat to death. I mean, he died crucified, but he died in three hours. He would have died if he had not been crucified. He was so beat up and treated like trash. Um, and so they pierced his side. After Longinus pierced his side, he famously says, truly this was the Son of God. As the blood flows down his lance and it flows onto his hands, he says, this is the Son of God. So we have the lance. The lance was kept in the circle of St. Peter's Basilica. The empty tomb. The empty tomb exists. So I'm going to skip the empty tomb. And the empty tomb, we'll talk about that in just a second. 
Jesus come, uh, Peter comes, John comes, they find an empty tomb. The empty tomb exists today. There's one tomb around which the entire structure of the basilica in Jerusalem is built. The sudarium, this is really interesting. This was new for me. So this is a sudarium. This is a piece of cloth that exists, and it has blood, A, B, uh, same type of blood as is present in the shroud, as is present in the uh, Argentine um, cloak tunic. So what is this? Yeah, I had actually seen this and never really understood what it was. So for the Jews, blood is the life force of the person. And so that should also be buried together with the person. So when they took Jesus down, what did they do? They wrapped a cloth around his head. This is, you'll read in Wikipedia when they tried to deny it. They're like, well, but in the shroud, you wouldn't see the face because it was wrapped. Hold on a second. Yes, they did put a shroud around his head. They put a, sorry, they put a, this rag around his head. Why? so that when they brought him down, all the blood that would flow out of the nose and out of the mouth wouldn't just land on the floor, on the ground, or land on the person that was bringing him down, but would be caught by this rag. So we have this rag. This rag, if it's wrapped in a particular way, I guess you could wrap it in different ways, but there's one way in which you wrap it, which perfectly matches blood coming from nostrils and mouth. Not only that, there's fingerprints on the rag right in the place where it's holding the nose. So this rag, uh, it has its own history of, let's see, Sudarium. Um, so the Roman, the fabric comes from the Roman Empire, and the relic has been in Oviedo since 761. So here it is. This, is, this gives you an idea of how it was held. And it's presented on mass. September 14th is the triumph of the cross. So what happened to this rag after it was brought down? Well, it was probably folded up and put on the side because they wanted to treat Jesus with as much tenderness and respect as possible. So once it had accumulated blood, they took the blood out and they put it there. So to be fine, these are all the things on, these are the scientific findings of that dot of that piece of cloth, which they have done scientific findings. So the only one they haven't done is Monopello, but they have done on all the rest. So here it is. Uh, also, they know from the blood that the man had all this liquid accumulated in his lungs, which is astounding. I mean, it's not astounding. It's more evidence of the data that we have of the crucifixion of Christ. And finally, the resurrection. So maybe we can end with a little spiritual exercise. And it's Close your eyes for a moment, and let's retrace that event on Sunday morning when Peter and John are the first to step into this tomb. So you're John, and you run there, and you get there before Peter. You look into the tomb, and you wait. Peter arrives, and you let him go in first, and then you, John, you go in to the tomb expecting to find your friend, the love of your past three years, who you saw crucified before your very eyes. And instead, what you see is, as it says in the Gospels, the uh, cloth, the head cloth, rolled perfectly on one side. And you see the shroud, but the shroud, as you approach it, holds nothing in it. 
you just see the flowers that are there. And so you see it's wrapped in a rope. You unwrap the rope and you open the shroud. And as you open it, you see all the flowers begin to fall onto the ground of the tomb. And you see the stains of blood. And you see the image of Christ dead and now not there. You see it engraved on the shroud of tomb. And at that moment, he says of himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved saw and believed. That was the experience of John. His friend was missing, and from everything he saw, he believed that the Messiah had risen. So, you can open your eyes now. The, this is kind of an appendix, how this image perfectly matches the Shroud of Turin. But the goal of this presentation is to help us understand and to help our faith grow, as I said, in the actual footprint, thumbprint, God's print in history. Yeah, the, histor- the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection is a historical event in a particular place that changes our life because it actually happened. Questions? Yeah? Uh, so like, how did that whole process work in regard to like passing it down over like centuries? Because like, when like they took the picture, that was like way, way late, right? Yeah. So like, who, who was it that was like passing it down all, all the time? Yeah. So that's part of the reason why the wars explained what happened. So for the Jews, the early Christians, so Peter and James, Peter and John, take the shroud and they run back to the apostles. Yeah. We don't actually see it. Actually, there's a whole other presentation only on the shroud. So I don't have all the data exactly in my head. But what I can tell you is this. The shroud is said to have gone to the Byzantine Empire, and then in the 1200s, it appears already in Italy. And then it's moved around to different places, and so it finally ends up in Turin in like the 1500s. So how did it happen? Yeah, someone folded it and kept it, and they would venerate it whenever they went. One little data that I find super interesting is, I think it's up until the year like 350, you find different images of Christ in art. So the Roman Jesus, is a man with no beard, very much in the image of an Apollo. And then, and you have different depictions of Jesus in different places. After a certain moment, every Jesus looks like the Jesus that we recognize. Beard, Semitic, long hair. Kind of longer nose, inset eyes. Yeah. And there's really no explanation for that unless there was some... Uh, canon of Jesus that everyone was looking at saying, yeah, that's what he should look like. Yeah, so, so I'm sorry, I don't have, a, I don't have a, the, the best answer. There's, there's, like I said, there's tons of information, and I don't know exactly the different places and the different years. Yeah? When did the Stations of the Cross um, tradition start in the church? Because like a lot of this is like confirms, like a lot of the relics Kind of yeah. match up with it. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't know the answer to that question, Kathleen. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, the nails. I was wondering, yeah. was there any blood left on the nails? And could they test blood on the nails to match it with the blood from the shroud and 
as far as I know, they have not tested, they have not found any blood actually stained into the nails. Yeah? In regard to the flowers, like, was, so like, Jesus was like buried with the flowers? Yes. Okay, God. And then also like, somebody like told me this, most of the time when people were crucified, they were crucified with ropes, right, instead of nails. Or was it that yes, that's okay. true. Yep, they have actually no one set way of crucifixion. There's depictions of a bunch of different types of crucifixion. Sometimes their legs would be folded. Sometimes they would be crucified with their arms above them. Sometimes they would be crucified like Saint Andrew on a Saint Andrew's cross, which is like a spread eagle type of cross. So yeah, yeah. Sometimes they would be kind of hoisted up with ropes. It was easier to hoist them up. Uh, one of the cross of the two thieves is in Rome, and I'm not sure what happened to the other one. In my memory, I think somehow they wanted to keep the one of the good thief and not keep the one of the bad thief. I don't know how to distinguish one from the other, but I can tell you in Rome, there's one that is the one of the good thief. Yes? Me personally? Well, not like, have you? <laughs> or, <laughs> just like, are there stories of people? Uh, you know what, that's a very good question, and I didn't do my homework. Besides the one of the original one with the cross, I don't know of any, but um, the my experience with relics is that there's tons of miracles and they're just not popularized. So in the miracles, like I remember one time I went to Rome, to, in Spain, there was an apparition of Our Lady that no one has ever heard about. And when we went to this tiny little town, it was signed by the bishop and by all the doctors of the city and like stamped and everyone is swearing to God and you know, and their punishment of hell and all this stuff. And it's documenting one miracle that occurred there. Yeah, so. For all these, the fact that they wanted to send the cross and that they were always selling them as relics and reliquaries, I think there's plenty of miracles, but that's a great addition to the presentation. Yeah? Was that Garibaldi? No, it wasn't Garibaldi. It was Nuestra uh, Señora de Roble, close to Salamanca. Yeah? There is a department in Rome, uh, in the Vatican, that is in charge of authenticating relics. And so when you want a relic authenticated, you bring it there, and they have catalogs, because at some moment, the church was extremely scrupulous about whether a relic was real or not, because people were going around selling relics. And so the Vatican took charge, and they, everything is extremely well documented. Yeah, this says St. Augustine. Yeah, actually it was here and here and here and here and here. And so we know it's St. Augustine. For actually the relics that are coming, I think I, I remember seeing a sign. I, I don't know who's bringing that. Yeah? It's going to be a wider question on just relics. So these are very high-class relics. Can you explain the difference between first, second, and third class? Yes. First-class relic is a piece of the body of the saint. 
Second class relic is something that the saint used habitually, like their breviary or their alb or their hair shirt or something. And a third class relic is something that has touched the body or the entombed body of relics, of a saint, sorry. So when you have, like, I don't know if anyone else has the Padre Pio relics being something that constantly, when you have, like, a third class relic like that, where it's a piece of cloth that has touched the body of Padre Pio, how are you to treat that? Yeah, so someone took a piece of cloth, put it to Padre Pio, and then mailed it to you. Yeah, so what do you do when you receive it? <laughs> 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 like, what? That's great. But, like, relics obviously are to be venerated and to be treated in a certain way, and I think my thoughts from this question of, like, how you pass relics back and forth, if they have yeah. a little bit of severe care. So, like, with a third class relic being mailed to me without any solicitation, <laughs> so I give a lot more importance to first and second class relics. I do know, and I don't think I do know someone that was healed when a first class relic of Mother Teresa was presented to them. This girl in the hospital, and they got a little hair of Mother Teresa, and they were healed. Um, second and third class relics are a bit more distance from the intercession of the saint, but you know, with regards to relics, the idea behind relics comes from the book of Acts where people would take handkerchiefs that Paul had used, or Peter, Paul, and then they would go around using them to heal people with these handkerchiefs. And so it's a very ancient tradition in the church. I think it's an ancient tradition because it's God's pedagogy to help connect us to historical reality of grace working in history. Because otherwise it would, it would be very easy to become Gnostics and think that it, somehow it's all in our heads and remains in our heads. But the relics bring us back down to reality. So, what to do with a third-class relic of Padre Pio? Every time you look at it, you can pray to Padre Pio. I know tons of miracles attributed to Padre Pio by people that I know. They've prayed and things have happened, and sometimes they're kind of playful. Like I know people who pray to Padre Pio, and they always find a mass wherever they go. And people who pray to Padre Pio for things that are lost. I know people who pray to Padre Pio for special graces in their priesthood and have received them. So, the intercession of the saints is very real. Yeah. I know you said it's an appendix, but I really like this story of Divine Mercy in mm -hmm. the Shroud. Can you t say more on it? Because yeah. I think it's really cool. Here's the actual image. of uh, It's a low-resolution image. I'm sorry. The actual image is much nicer. Uh, so, you want the other one? So, the Divine Mercy image... Do you guys all know about Divine Mercy, or Ish? Yeah. Ish? Yes. Yes. Okay, so Jesus appears to a girl who's at a dance in Krakow, and he says, why are you breaking my heart? Aww. <laughs> and so she decides to leave and join the convent, but no convent will accept her until she finally finds this convent. They're typical. Back in the day, you had two types of nuns at every convent, the ones that gave a dowry and the ones that didn't give a dowry. The ones that were more intelligent and came from aristocratic families and the ones that didn't. So she shows up to this place, she doesn't have a dowry, she kind of gets a little bit of something, like, yeah, fine, you can be a nun, but you're gonna have to work in the kitchen your whole life. She's like, great, I just wanted to be a nun. So she becomes a nun, and when she's a nun, Jesus totally just lays all the mystical graces you can possibly find on this one girl. Her name is Faustina. 
she sees Jesus in the Eucharist as a baby, she sees Jesus scourged, Jesus appears, the Eucharist appears in her breviary one day, she's reading the prayers, all of a sudden the actual Eucharist comes, she has to go put the Eucharist back in the chapel, and when she's holding Jesus back in the chapel, she hears Jesus tell, him, tell her, uh, I just wanted to be in your hands for a moment. She has this amazing correspondence of love to the Lord. She offers her life for the nuns around her. She loves them. She forgives them. She's a really extremely holy woman. Obviously, she's a saint, Saint Faustina. And she writes a diary of all the things that Jesus is telling her. Mary appears to her. The devil appears to her and tries to tempt her. And she just, like, blows them off. Uh, other nuns that have died appear to her for purgatory. She prays for them. And they appear again, glorified. They're like, thank you, Faustina, for praying for me, you know. So it really is just all these miracles. And Steven Spielberg, you know, should make a movie because all the special effects. <laughs> Jesus appears in a certain moment and says, I want you to have a painting of me the way I appear to you. So she calls an artist, and the poor artist makes all these different versions of the painting. And she keeps on saying, nope, that's not what it looks like. Nope, that's not what it looks like. Nope, that's not what it looks like. He finally paints something, and she's like, oh, okay, I mean, sure, this will do, I guess. Right? It's like a fraction of how beautiful and attractive he is. And that's this image. Yeah. And not only that, Jesus tells her, she has this dream where, oh, so she's this nun that doesn't really even know how to, I think she kind of learned how to read and write a little bit, right? There's a bunch of errors in the, in the, in the, in the diary, like grammatical errors and everything else, right? She writes like a fourth grader. Jesus says, you are going to be this great saint and you're going to establish this feast day of divine mercy and everyone's going to pray the chaplet of divine mercy and you're going to be canonized in Rome. Well, no, no, she's, every, the whole world is going to know about this thing. She's like, okay, well, I'm this little nun here in Krakow. Right? Fast forward the story, JP2 reads the diary, loves the diary, elevates her to the, the uh, makes her a saint, canonizes her. She had actually had an image of being in St. Peter's, looking down at an entire crowd full of people worshiping God during a ceremony. Yeah? During the ceremony of her canonization, her relics were in the, speaking of relics, her relics were exactly in the place from which she described the vision she had of being in St. Peter's looking down at this immense crowd of people. And yeah, pretty awesome. The image that she painted became world famous, and we have Divine Mercy Sunday. It's the Sunday after Easter. Did I miss something? Yeah. No, uh, well, I. So it wasn't different versions. She kept telling the person to like put on different layers of paint, mm. and so like after it got to its perfection, it like it matches perfectly the uh, the shroud. Oh yeah, and it matches the shroud. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It matches so, the shroud. Yeah, that's the that's the one. Yeah. Part. <laughs> so it's a re it's a kind of a confirmation of the shroud in this great saint of the twentieth century. Her convent had a printing press that. Uh, uh, brother Max needed and took that printing press and loaded it up in a somehow was able to carry it out to this new little thing he was founding and Max became St. Maximilian Kolbe and that printing press from that printing press from that comment ended up printing the magazine that St. Maximilian Kolbe sent to the whole world great 